welcome again to another story time with the Historists with your hosts Jen Dumas and Matt Breen. And today we're going to get a little bit into this event called the Protestant Reformation. Matt, we've seen recently in uh, the Indian Ocean trade route, we've seen Spain in South America and the Caribbean, we've seen Britain in North America. We've had a lot of like religious stuff going on. We know that one of the goals of Portugal in the Indian Ocean trade route was to spread Christianity. We see Spain doing the same thing in the new world and then we also see a lot of people coming from England to escape what they call religious persecution and be able to practice their religion freely in the Americas so what is the catalyst for all this going on uh, Martin Luther that's it's not a what it's a who uh, in a lot of ways because what ended up occurring in Europe in the middle part of the 16th century is taking the uh, ideology of one man, really, and twisting it politically. Um, but then that guy, Martin Luther, he leans into that twist in a lot of ways and starts to empower princes, people inside of the central part of Europe to break away from the church. And what's really interesting about this period of time uh, in European history, but also world history, is this is one of the first instances where we can see minute religious uh, disputes blossom and then like take on almost an explosion really uh, of change and really start to alter the pathways of not just people in Europe or Afro-Eurasia, but really globally overall. So not a what, a who in a lot of ways. So I, I know a, a bit about Martin Luther. I know that he was like, a, he's German and he was practicing to be a lawyer. And the story goes one night he's, you know, walking on this dark road and I don't know if the middle of nowhere or not, but there's this lightning storm and like thunder is rolling and lightning is flashing everywhere. And like, I heard the story goes, he gets down on his knees and says, God, if you save me, if you don't let me get struck by lightning, then I will dedicate my service to you. And I do know that he quits law school and then becomes a student of theology and uh, decides that he's going to be a professor of theology. But how does that transition into this guy who is going to completely reform Catholicism and Christianity. But he's a purist in a lot of ways. I mean, you could think of him very similar if you're a religious person, if you know the, the canonic history of the Bible to like a Paul uh, and uh, Saul of Tarsus and, and Paul's religious conversion. And his faith um, becomes the center of his world. And so when he starts to look at um, the sale of indulgences and the actions of a Bishop Tetzel in the central part of the Holy Roman Empire, or just like the sheer hypocrisy that he views of the church trying to rebuild and capitalize on this new wealth generation um, that's coming out of um, Spain and Portugal and, and exploration in the Indian Ocean Trade Network in North and South America, what Martin Luther sees is a blatant money grab in a lot of ways. So I've, I've heard about indulgences, the, the idea that um, if you paid a certain amount of money to the church or you paid to go see a holy relic um, or you helped give money to the church to build something, then the Pope could issue a letter that would basically remit sins for you or a dead relative, and it would either lessen people's time in purgatory or you could actually spring your relatives out of purgatory and go to heaven. Now, I know that this has been done for centuries in the Catholic Church and, and has been accepted until now what what happens with Martin Luther where he basically says enough is enough what what is his 
is reasoning his catalyst as to all of a sudden, why isn't this an acceptable practice? Well, I think in a lot of ways, it's the idea that just with the indulgence, just by itself, uh, without any prayer, without any sort of thought process towards like reforming your sin, you're not doing anything to purify yourself. You're just purchasing your way out of heaven. It's just a ticket out of heaven. And, you know, when we compare that to the actions of crusaders and um, the peasants and nobility who went on crusades, especially that first crusade, a lot of people felt that this this was going to be a purifying event. The other part of it that's really interesting is to take a look at some of the social structure of Europe during this time period. A lot of those second and third sons of nobility started to look at the church as a way of maintaining a wealthy, affluent lifestyle. And indulgences didn't just go towards the building of St. Peter's Basilica and expanding like the actual palace of the Pope, because that's what that church can really be seen as. It's also a way of funding somebody else's lifestyle. And so if we were to take a look at um, like modern day practices, this might be raiding corporate accounts to go on expensive trips and dinners and um, outfit yourself in you know, nice clothes. It's corruption in a lot of ways. So, so these guys were these second and third board sons were becoming church officials, not because they cared about saving anybody, not because they truly believed in Christianity, but this was the only way that they would be able to keep up their their wealthy lifestyle. Absolutely, and this is where things get complicated. And I know in discussions with uh, both of our students in our classes over the last couple of weeks, um, there's been some confusion of like what's going on in Europe, and this is a really dynamic period of time in European history because. You know, the chaos that came from the Black Death, the chaos that comes from um, the, the removal of Muslim populations in southern Europe also leads to the expansion of power for lots of European monarchs. And the kings of Europe, um, specifically specifically in France and in the Holy Roman Empire, but also in England and northern Europe, like in Sweden, a lot of these monarchs gain a lot of power, not only over their own realms, but f like power that's been ceded by the church. The churches didn't have the same power that it had three, 400 years ago. And so if you are part of the highborn noble class who might have two or 300 years in the uh, prior been able to maintain a healthy lifestyle, now that's gone. The church is an avenue towards um, some of that social success. So the expansion of, of monarchs also plays a role here as well. So Martin Luther walks into the School of Theology and becomes a student, and this is what he's exposed to. And and not that he didn't know that indulgences were there, because he did, and, and the practice of simony, selling the church office to the highest bidder, was there. Um, but from the historical accounts, what really sets Martin Luther off is when he starts reading the New Testament, because I know initially he'd believed that, you know, God was a wrathful God, Old Testament God, and then he's got his theology professors telling him, you need to read the New Testament, and he does, and it's what's in the New Testament that really kind of shakes his faith, because I know from, again, historical accounts, that Martin Luther cannot find any scripture basis for indulgences. He can't find any scripture basis uh, for a lot of the practices that the church was engaging in in order to gain money. And originally, all he wanted to do was make these abuses aware to the Pope and everybody else so they would fix it. But that is not quite what happened. So fill us in on what happens once Mar Martin Luther starts pointing out these abuses. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's a really good point. And I think that uh, when we track this story, there's two things that we need to maintain as listeners uh, throughout the you know, next 
whatever minutes we have left in the podcast. Um, reading the Bible is going to be key to what happens with Luther. And the other thing to keep in mind um, is that Luther was truly a reformer. He was not somebody who's looking to burn this stuff down to the ground. He's not Genghis Khan, right? He's not looking to destroy everything in his path. He just wants to spotlight in a lot of ways what he feels are um, corrupt actions inside of the church and wants to bring attention to those actions so that the church could strengthen itself. Because as you pointed out, his conversion um, is really about uh, taking into his life everything that God has to offer from his standpoint and becoming the best person that he can possibly be. And so what he does is he uh, like draws up 95 theses, this plan, this step-by-step plan towards making the church better overall. And, you know, in traditional, um, you know, whistleblower fashion, he takes this first to the people who are going to be actually able to um, enact the plan. He's stonewalled, you know, hey, kind of get back in line. You're a student. You are low level. Um, you are not the type of guy who's going to bring about change. Change like this inside of the church happens at the highest levels. And from Luther's perspective, well, those are the same type of people who are approving the sales of these indulgences. So changes are going to happen. So he takes the unprecedented step of taking this to the public. And he'll nail these theses in very dramatic form uh, on the, the doors of uh, Wittenberg uh, Cathedral. And he will present to the public, this is what's wrong with the church. And at the core of everything that he's going to push from here on out is the creation of your own personal relationship with God, because that's how Luther found himself in this position in the first place. He has this conversion uh, underneath this tree in the dead of night in this life-threatening storm. He has a, uh, a, a moment of clarity when he's reading his Bible, where he says, this is, um, th- this is a, a, a twisting of God's words, what I'm witnessing, and he will take this to the people and say, you know what, maybe we should stop taking for granted uh, God's faith or God's love, excuse me, and we shouldn't just put this in faith alone. Maybe we should actually start to um, become better Christians, we being every single Christian in Christendom. Yeah, and I know like when he has this revelation after reading the New Testament and his famous words, by faith alone you are saved. And so I, I know that that's the message he wants to go tell the people that, that all these things that you've been told by the church so far aren't really necessary. In fact, the only evidence for salvation in the scriptures, and the scriptures being the Bible, is that if you believe Jesus Christ died for your sins, that is alone what's going to save you. Not giving money to the church, um, not doing good deeds for the church. Like it is by faith alone you you are saved. And he does present this to the church. And and initially, he really thinks that the church officials are going to be down with what he's saying. Because again, like you said, he's not trying to burn down Catholicism. He's trying to fix it. And by making these abuses more aware to the public or making the public more aware of these abuses, he is hoping that the church takes takes this on and actually does, you know, solve these problems because he knows that there are corrupt officials in the church, just there there are corrupt officials in anything you have on this planet. But he believes that this corruption is fairly, fairly limited. And then if he does take it to the highest, you know, officials, whether it's the bishops or the cardinals or the popes, they're going to take a stand for this and say, you know what, Martin Luther, you are right. We are going to fix these problems so that we can do what we are meant to do, which is to save people's souls. But again, what Martin Luther 
expects to happen and what does happen are two completely, totally different things. So, so what happens, Matt? What I happens mean, to Martin Luther? I mean, the whole time you're you're talking there, I've got this inward smile. I'm chuckling to myself. This idea of burning it down because if Luther hadn't been a purist, if Luther hadn't been a zealot, if he had been something of a historian, he would have taken the uh, knowledge of what happened to John Huss about 60, 75 years earlier and said to himself, like, maybe calling out this power publicly like this was a really bad call because um, you used this idea of burning things down. John Huss was another would-be church reformer who was burned at the stake for his heresy uh, when he took on the Catholic Church apparatus, um, you know, in a very similar sort of fashion. You know, about the only thing that keeps Luther from being burned at the stake from becoming the next day, you know, piece of charcoal, uh, so to speak, is that there is a huge number of political uh, backers people who are also looking to uh, gain political power in Central Europe, in the Holy Roman Empire, who want to get out from underneath of Charles V of um, you know Spanish fame, and they basically shield him. So you have a lot of um, political leaders who see Martin Luther saying, hey, you don't have to tithe, hey, you don't have to do this, as maybe even an excuse to gain more money and more power and no longer be under the control of the church. And so they're going to back him more for political means than necessarily religious beliefs, but it's enough support that... Luther's not going to suffer the same fate that previous people who have challenged the church have suffered. Absolutely. I mean, he's literally going to be taken from castle to castle, from uh, principality to principality in uh, what is modern-day Germany, and he's going to be locked up in towers and hid away um, from inquisitors and from people who are representing both uh, King Charles V and um, the Catholic Church. And he's basically going to be radicalized through this process. So what we see in the beginning when Luther in 1517 hammers those theses to the door is somebody who's really pure of heart. And by the 1530s and 1540s, Luther has decided he's going to create his own church. Now he's being pushed to create his own church. And I don't think it uh, can be uh, minimized. You brought up this idea of not having to tithe. Tithing is paying taxes. And so... For a lot of these leaders in the Holy Roman Empire, these princes, they're seeing this as a way of really breaking free of um, the yoke of control of the Catholic Church. But from Luther's perspective, he sees people who are going to protect him long enough to create his own church. And he will actually be able to put into praxis that which he was thinking about 20 years prior. Yeah, and, and I know that part of the reason that he had to create his own church is because at the Diet of Worms, which was a, a council meeting between church, the church and Martin Luther, actually a trial from Martin Luther, um, they kept telling him to recant, and and he wouldn't. He's like, unless you can prove to me through Scripture, through the Bible's words, that I'm wrong, I'm not going to recant a single thing. And that's that's where the line in the sand was drawn between the Catholic Church, and this is where we get the split in Christianity. So now we have Catholicism and what's known as Protestantism or Lutheranism. So it's a group of people who are going to continue to follow the old school Catholicism, and a people who are going to break away and follow Martin Luther's form of Christianity. So, um, and, and it continued on, and eventually we get the Counter-Reformation, and, and the Catholic Church does fix some things, but that's, that's farther into the future. But what I want to do now is tie in this Protestant Reformation, the 
under Martin Luther and the reform of the Catholic Church to what we're seeing in uh, Spanish colonial Americas and British colonial North America. So how does the Protestant Reformation play into those the, the events that we see in the 15th and 16th centuries in the New World? Right. You know, you, you talked about this idea of breaking away in a group of people following Luther. Well, that lasts for a really short period of time because uh, when Luther starts quoting the Bible and when Luther starts talking about um, uh, New Testament scripture, that opens up the door for other people to have their own interpretations about God's word as well. And so very famously, we have people like Zwingli and the Anabaptists, and we have um, people like Knox and Calvin uh, in Sweden and Scotland, respectively, um, who are going to start to interpret uh, the Word of God in their own light, and each one of them will end up forming their own church. So you'll have the Calvinists, you'll have the Presbyterians, you'll have the Anabaptists, you'll have the Lutherans, you'll have the Methodists, and on and on and on we go. And each one of these different groups is trying to carve out a place inside a Europe to have a safe place to practice a religion, a place where they're not going to be persecuted and a place where they're not going to be hunted down. And that's become really, really difficult because each one of these Protestant faiths is just as stringently committed to their interpretation as the Catholic Church was committed to their interpretation as well. And so we see really quickly a period of religious violence start to break out all across the European continent. And that violence could be small scale. It could be political or social violence, or it could be like full-on warfare. And so what ends up happening is a lot of the different faiths that um, start to form bounce around from kingdom to kingdom to kingdom. So out of Switzerland, we'll get some of the Calvinists who will make their way into Europe or excuse me, into England, and their uh, ideas will be reformed and they will become the ideas of the Puritan faith. Um, you'll have the Anabaptists who will travel around and make their way to the New World as well. And each one of these different groups that sets up shop gaining a charter from the English crown or from the Dutch crown, or not Dutch crown, um, the, 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 the Hague, um, uh, each one of these different groups will set up their own colony in the uh, New World where they're looking for just a place to worship more than anything else, a place that they can enact uh, their pure belief system. So all these different groups um, start after the Protestant Reformation, after we have the initial split between Protestants and Catholics, and they have their own beliefs, and then everybody's basically like, no, your belief is wrong, your belief is wrong, mine's right. And so just to avoid the, the battles, the skirmishes, the persecution, they just take off, especially for the British, they take off to North America and just like people, let us practice our own religion. And so that's how the Protestant Reformation plays a little bit into the colonization of North America. Now, what about South America and the Caribbean? Because Spain remained predominantly Catholic. Um, we had the Spanish Inquisition because of, of Catholicism and Protestantism, coupled along with the Reconquista. It's not that you have Protestants breaking away from Spain, going to the New World. So what is? how does the Reformation impact what Spain does in the Americas? So from the Spanish perspective and the Portuguese perspective, there's going to be an empowering of different groups of um, uh, monks, different orders. So you'll have the Jesuits, who very famously, um, under Ignatius Loyola at the Council of Trent, are empowered to become like, you know, I, I use the term like warrior uh, priests. Um, they're going to be really learned um, uh, priests who are going to be at the forefront of religious reform in Europe, but conversion in the New World. But mainly you're going to get a group called uh, the Franciscan monks. And the Franciscans had been the group of monks who had protected the poor and had sheltered and shepherded those people in society 
society who had been you know left behind and the franciscans are going to move in mass into the spanish territories and they're going to be working first with the native populations but they'll also start to work with um some of the various groups um the mulattoes and the mestizos and uh the different groups of people who result from uh intermarriage between Amerindians and spanish settlers and they're going to look to convert um these native groups and these um secondary tertiary groups of people on the social scale to Catholicism, and they're going to look to strengthen the Catholic hold uh, on these people as well. So Spain's really, what they're trying to do is counteract the loss of Catholics in Europe by converting more people in the New World, thus bringing up the Catholic population and continuing to support Catholicism in the face of what we'd call this like Protestant rebellion. Yeah, is like that a, what we're seeing? Like a numbers game, exactly. They're looking to gather as many souls uh, as possible, and we know that there's going to be places, especially places that are in, impacted economically, where the Franciscans are going to do a really good job of converting people. But there will also be places um, where we will see that there's a lot of resistance in the Pueblo Pueblo revolt would be a really good example of Amerindian native populations revolting against the fourth forced religious conversion in the missionary system that's set up in the western part of what is now the United States um, and, and those populations saying like no thank you um, but being forced into the missions into the economic bondage um, and then eventually being forced to recant their own personal beliefs and faith, uh, you know, creating conflict and violence as well. So, uh, you know, for all sides, this is a really hectic uh, time period fraught with a lot of violence and a lot of change. So, so we've got this guy in, say, 1515 who, simply because he's walking home in the middle of a storm, decides he's going to dedicate his life to studying Christianity, reads the New Testament in the Bible, decides that what the Catholic Church is doing is wrong, posts 95 disagreement or wrongdoings of the, church, of the Catholic Church on the doors of a cathedral in Wittenberg. And from that one simple act, we get the split of the Christian Church into Protestantism and Catholicism, we get one big motivation for uh, colonialism in at least North America with the British as people are trying to come over to avoid religious persecution. We get continued exploration in the Americas, especially Caribbean and, and South America, because Spain wants to add to the Catholic numbers that they've lost in the New World, all because some guy's walking on a dark road one night and is afraid to, you know, be dropped dead through lightning. Absolutely. And, I'll, you know, we could take this even one step further because um, that period of religious warfare in Europe ends up uh, being resolved at the Peace of Augsburg. And at the Peace of Augsburg, the basic settlement is, you know what, your land, your region, your religion, which starts to break up even more the religious ties that bound Europe together and ushers in the modern European state, which will then have drastic economic and social reverber uh, reverberations as well. I mean, this is a... like you know, history altering moment. And again, all from um, this guy who believes that, you know, his prayers were answered and he wasn't struck by lightning um, and um, really did change the course of human history. Well, for not being involved in history for a substantial period of time, Europe catches up really, really quickly. Uh, that's going to do it for us today. Uh, again, I'm Jen Dumas. Matt Boring. And thank you for spending time and listening to our stories today with Storytime with the Historists.